Welcome POC students, teachers, both and neither. This is Failed by Academia, the podcast where we talk about how school screwed us. Today, I have Keisha Monet Bradford with me. Keisha, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to hear that. So obviously, I'm really stoked to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I am uh, currently pursuing a doctoral degree and working on my dissertation right now. In addition to that, I am also a full-time employee working for a nonprofit, and that is keeping me very busy. And about me, I love healthcare. Uh, That is my background. In addition to that, I also like to volunteer and, and help others in my free time. So you mentioned that you love healthcare. How are you perceiving our current issue with the coronavirus? Whew, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, truthfully, there are things that we could have done better in terms of before cases were ever reported here in the United States. We saw what was happening in other countries and other parts of the world, and we should have been acting in terms of ordering supplies and readying and educating the public. Instead, it was more of a, well, that's their problem. We don't have to worry about it. And then when cases started to be reported here in the States, then it was very reactionary in terms of, oh, coronavirus is here. Oh, now we need more supplies. We need more personal protective equipment or PPEs. So continually, the coronavirus is highlighting various challenges and issues when it has come to reporting cases, uh, testing capabilities, ensuring that the tests are reliable. Um, there, there's so many things. <laughs> Something that always strikes me is just how apparent the inequalities are also being highlighted yes. through this, which kind of dips into what we're going to talk about. Absolutely. So give us a little bit of how you decided to go into your program and what that was like. (laughs) Yes. Oh, dear. Uh, Funny enough, I had never thought about going back and getting a doctoral degree. At the time, I was working for a nonprofit. I was still very early in my career. And so I just felt like I was not being heard. It wasn't being listened to. I am young presenting and a black female. And so I think a lot of people just didn't think I knew what I was talking about, didn't have the experience. How could you possibly know? And so at my job, I felt like I was being passed up for a promotion. There was a situation that happened and I was frustrated. I was tired of not being listened to. My background, as I mentioned, is health administration and policy. And so I love healthcare, and I've always had an interest in leadership as well. Uh, leadership has been one of those topics that I've learned to love ever since my undergraduate courses. So in my free time, I would read leadership articles for the heck of it. And so when I thought I had been passed up for uh, an opportunity, I'm like, okay, all right, all right. I am going to show them what I'm capable of doing. And obviously, they don't think that I have skills or I'm lacking something. So I'm going to get those skills, that education. So really, I started my doctoral research out of spite. 
you know, you don't hear spite as a motivator nearly as much as you should. As you should, absolutely. And so spite is what led me to do research as to what doctoral programs are around me. I have a master's in public administration, and so I looked at a doctoral degree in that field, realized it wasn't that appealing to me. When I looked at it, I wasn't excited. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I can't do that. And so I looked back at this university I'd gone to and really was amazed at what they had to offer. And so they offered an EDD program. And I thought, yes, yes, let me let me see. And so started doing my research, started talking to individuals, found that I absolutely loved it, applied, got accepted with conditions. And so I feel like for listeners, they need to know that it is possible to continue on in a program, even when you're accepted into a graduate program with conditions. So tell me about these conditions. Yes. So the conditions were, I had to take a writing class because my writing samples, even though I reviewed them, I had others review them, they weren't good enough. They clearly highlighted a need for more work to be done. Uh, And so I had to take a writing class. I had to maintain a B or higher in the first nine credits of the program. And those were like the two that stuck out to me. I believe those were the two. Uh, And so just going into a graduate program, doctoral program with conditions was nerve wracking. I believed in myself. I felt like I could do it, but still funny enough, um, the writing class that I had to take, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Good. The book that we had to read was very kind of fun. It wasn't super dry, but I really learned to enjoy academic writing and that it can be fun. You can infuse your voice, but then funny enough, when I would infuse my voice with some professors and some of my writings, it was like, oh no, this isn't academic writing. But all that to say, the conditions that I had going into my graduate program, I was scared shitless and nervous and doubting myself and my abilities. And so I stayed true and focused on school. And once I got through those first nine credits with all A's. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And so I've been able to maintain a very high GPA. In fact, the highest academic GPA um, I've ever had. But yeah, it, it was nerve wracking. So everything sounds awesome right now, but tell us about the stuff that wasn't so awesome. Yeah. In my program, I was able to you know, complete all my classwork, no problem, got through all my coursework and got to a point where I needed to complete my candidacy. So fun way of stating that you've learned something in the program. And so during the time that I was working on my candidacy, it was 2017, my eight-year-long relationship came to an end. And and so there was new things being uh, done there in terms of, you know, new place I was living, uh, just new habits, new surroundings. So that was one thing. But I was still working. I had moved to a new location. Um, I was still juggling school and nailing the school thing until I got to this candidacy point. And so with candidacy, 
you had to submit a couple writing, answer a couple questions, and you only had a certain time frame to do it. So during that time that I was attempting to work on my candidacy, I was struggling with how to answer this. What are they looking for? Because you can take these questions in so many different ways. Like, how do I highlight fully answering these questions? Anyway, during that time that I was starting down my road of candidacy, in addition to my own personal struggles, I had found out that my dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer. So I was going to appointments with him in addition to juggling work and school and whatnot. I worked on my candidacy. I submitted it, did the best I could. Turns out, wasn't that great. So I had a second chance. In the program, you only get two chances. So I said, okay. During that time, I was continuing to go with my dad to his doctor's appointments. My parents are separated. Turns out, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer during the same time that my dad had kidney cancer. So got him through his procedure, was going to my mom's doctor's appointment, working on candidacy, working a full-time job, and submitted my candidacy, got my mom through her doctor's appointments. Those are some pretty big accomplishments to be able to be such a rock for your family. And also even focus one brain cell on school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And with work, I was still juggling and holding down all my projects. And so submitted candidacy. And then my mom had her surgery. And it was a seven hour long surgery. Oh my gosh. I was nervous and funny. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I did this. But the day of my mom's surgery, I was leading a call, like a national call. And I did it from the hospital while my mom was in surgery. Oh my God. <laughs> yep. About few weeks later, after my mom's procedure, I found out that I did not pass my candidacy. So I was automatically dismissed from my doctoral program. And so I was destroyed, honestly. I thought, this is a part of who I am. And now I'm kicked out? And I had a real long conversation with myself and was like, Keisha, can you do this? Do you want to continue on? I thought about it and I thought, hell yeah, I'm not ready to give up. I'm not ready to give up. I'm not ready to give in. So I wrote an appeal letter, submitted the letter, didn't hear shit from anyone. I was nervously waiting and no one was really talking to me. And I just felt like this outsider, which as a person of color, <laughs> you know, I already feel outside like an outsider, um, but I had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And then finally, I received an email stating, Keisha, you will receive this letter officially, but you are reinstated back in the program. And I thought, you dang right. So then I at, at this point in time, I had a committee already established. And so I had to begin. I, I still had to actually <laughs> I still had to complete my candidacy. And I only had one final shot. Oh, my God. Otherwise, I was completely dismissed. At this point, what did your advisor do? Was she helping you? What What was her take on it? Because obviously, her job is to kind of like support you at this point. The perception I got was that her hands were tied, that it was outside of her realm, outside of her control. So she was there. We had a conversation. And she really, actually, I will say she tried her hardest when I only had one shot left. We did have a conversation and she sat down and 
tried to give me as, you know, many tips and tricks and, and things to consider or include or whatnot. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was for me to do. I had to do the work. I had to prove that I had learned something. And so that's what I set out to do. And so you meant you were mentioning you had a committee. I had a committee, my dissertation committee. And so during the whole time that I had been dismissed and everything, I was keeping that committee updated on like, okay, well, technically I'm not a student right now. I'm still waiting to hear back as to whether or not I've been reinstated. I will keep you guys in the loop. I only had one shot at candidacy and I gave it all I had and I hoped for the freaking best and turns out uh, I passed. I didn't know what grade I got or, you know, whatever. But at that point in time, I was just happy to know that I could move on to my then proposal. So then began working on my proposal and that's been quite the process. So my dissertation committee, I felt like we're kind of hands off when it came to guiding me a bit. Uh, Expectations were not set. I would communicate and I would ask questions and I would get answers to those questions. But in terms of their overall expectations, that was not shared with me. Do you think that your first generation status played a role in that? Oh, it played a huge role. I mean, I was fighting imposter syndrome the whole entire time and was trying to overcome that while working on my proposal and my dissertation committee, they did not get that. And so what I started to do was I started to set these goals for myself and I would not accomplish them. And that is normally not like me. When I set goals, I normally achieve them. And I will say my committee was comprised of two white women at the time. And for my dissertation committee, you only needed two individuals. So both of which white women, um, I don't know about one of the committee members, like what her family situation was like. Um, but I do know that my chair was an older white woman. And so it was just kind of like, what's your problem? Like, you should be able to do this. Like, I was able to do it. You you do it. I can't. I always find it really interesting how white women although overcoming issues like sexism, don't typically ally themselves with the group of women, but will go more towards the group of white men when it comes to siding. It's it's really mind-blowing um, how often that happens. I don't quite understand. Obviously, I'm a woman of color, so I but I don't understand the allegiance, if that makes sense. I think they go through this very difficult system. So they understand that there's challenges inherently, but because they were able to overcome the issues of sexism, they forget that there's a completely different undercurrent of racism that comes in. So they're able to look at another woman and think, oh yeah, it's tough, but it's super doable because I did it. Exactly. And so, so long story short, I had been in my proposal uh, stage for over a year. And my committee was starting to become agitated. And again, those expectations were not laid out. And when I would 
I would communicate what I'd been working on, what I'd done, also to provide context. The imposter syndrome, first-generation student, as we've already established, huge factors. Coupled with the fact that I never thought in a million years I would go back and get a doctoral degree, that I, again, this relates to imposter syndrome, was worthy enough to be in this place. And also, the way my program is structured, it's quite elitist. It's a predominantly white institution. So I'm struggling with that as well. And to get through my coursework, I was amazed that I was able to hold down and establish a, you know, a very high GPA. But then the dissertation from the get-go has always been perceived in my mind as this huge, huge thing that I just never thought I would be able to tackle. Like it is a huge mountain, if you will. And so I kept trying, I kept seeing it in this huge light and thinking of it as this impossible task, this impossible thing. And so I had to kind of begin changing my mindset and like break it down and make it more manageable and obtainable and focus on those things. And so fast forward to, what is it, 2019, my committee, my dissertation chair was like, Keisha, you need to move this proposal forward. Like there needs to be more movement. Um, And really, she didn't even say that. Like, I guess she thought that, but that was never communicated to me. Uh, And so I was working on um, my proposal and I had to have a meeting, a conversation with my advisor as to do I want to continue in this program? Because by this point in time, I should have been like working on my dissertation. I should have been past the proposal stage. So I had a deep heart to heart with myself. I took a week to think about, do I just want to throw in the towel? Do I just, do I just want to be done? Or, you know, I weighed my options and I was presented with a few options. And so I communicated with my committee, like, okay, these are my options. So I took a week off. At the end of that week, I thought, I'm not done. I am not done. No, no, y'all, no, mm -mm, I am ready. I am ready. Let's do this. So I communicated that with my advisor, communicated that with my chair, my committee. And I said, full steam ahead. I'm going to do this. And so during those few months, I was moving things forward. I just kept at it. I had been making progress and was communicating that progress. So then the end of the semester comes unbeknownst to me. My chair was like, Keisha, I have not received anything from you. I need to submit a grade. And at this point in time, it's a one credit. You either pass or you fail. So she sends me an email, includes my advisor and says, you know what? I have not seen any progress. I'm sorry to say, but I'm going to fail you. You have not had any, you have not shown any progress. And even though it's a one credit and she would fail me the way my program is structured, you get a fail, you're automatically dismissed. And I thought, you know what? I have had to fight and appeal to get back in this program once. If I have to do it again, I will. And so I thought, you know what? Let me let me push back. I don't normally argue with professors or whatnot. I try and see their side. I'm like, okay. 
But so I was like, no, you talked about progress. There has been progress. And in those emails, I would include and uh, loop in my advisor. So that way it wasn't as she said, she said versus my chair, you know, and us doing a back and forth because I recognize my chair also has years of experience, a lot of clout in the program. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm up against, you know, someone big here. So I, I got to bring it. I got to bring all I have. And so, and I also was pulling emails. And so when my chair was referencing past emails, I said, I have those emails too. Long story short, my chair was like, you know what? I'm going to pass you. But effective immediately, I'm no longer going to be your chair. Oh, my God. And I said, bye, Felicia. <laughs> Wish you all the best in your retirement. At that point in time, I was like, I was just ha happy that I was not um, kicked out that I wasn't dismissed from the program, that I wasn't marked down as failed. To provide such little guidance and then just peace is amazing. You know, first generations don't have the context of how to operate within this system. It's a struggle enough to be a first gen, but to have this such a lack of like direction or mentoring is mm -hmm. it's so debilitating. Oh, yeah. So this mentor pieced out. Yes. Well, in my chair, I knew early on that she was retiring. And so I had a conversation, I remember, with my advisor as to what, like, do I need to do something in case my uh, chair gets, like, wants to fully retire? And my advisor was like, oh, well, let her decide. So then when I kind of pushed back on the... Uh, passing me for this uh, credit, then she just effective immediately, I'm no longer your chair. I thought, can I move forward without a committee? Because at that point in time, I just wanted to keep moving. But because my advisor had been kept in the loop on all the emails, she said, Keisha, I'm aware of your situation and the fact that you no longer have a committee. So this is what we're going to do. And she extended a couple options uh, one of which was kind of an olive branch, a saving grace, if you will. And so I took that and by doing so, I had to take a class that would pair me with a new chair. Um, in doing so, it would help me complete my proposal. So I thought, heck yeah, let's do this. So then I've been connected with a new chair who, while she's a white woman, she's also first generation. So her and I click very well. She's very supportive. She's been absolutely amazing. Her and I were very strategic in identifying a committee member to serve on my committee who has qualitative experience. And this individual is a woman of color, um, has years of qualitative experience, and has been very very helpful. So all that to say, in the time that I've had my new committee since 2019, I went on to complete my proposal, defend my proposal. Then beginning of this year, I ended up changing a lot of my study, but changed it in a short amount of time, submitted for IRB approval, got through IRB approval, and now I'm doing my data collection right now. So congratulations on all of that. I'm really, really happy to hear. I'm going to delve into some questions, if you don't mind. How helpful do you think it is to have committee members who share similar identities with you? 
I think it's very helpful. Um, just having committee members that kind of share some of the same background qualities that you do helps to know that it's possible, that it is feasible. And I feel like in academia tends to be perceived as a very white washed institution as a whole. And let's be real, it is. <laughs> uh, and so having people that identify as you do, it helps tremendously. And it's been very helpful just knowing that my committee member, like, she's a badass. She's a badass black woman. And then my chair uh, was also first generation as well. And so she understands some of the struggle. And so they have been very supportive, which truly has been nice. It's kind of a night and day difference from my first committee. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at how much you've gotten done when you have support. Mm -hmm. So I do have to ask for some advice for the people who are listening. Mm -hmm. If they find themselves to be first generation, people of color, mm -hmm. or just any of the identities you share, what advice would you give moving forward? One of the beautiful things is that in today's world, we have various support groups, whether it's via Facebook, whether it's um, through other like websites, means, what have you. I think it can't hurt to reach out to others, to ask if others have struggled as you have. Um, because I felt like I was going through this entire thing alone. I felt like an outsider, like an outcast. I felt like a failure. And I feel like in our society, we very much talk about uh, the successes, but we don't talk about the failures. And, you know, in my biggest failure, I've started to move forward and be successful. I loved what you said about failure, and it's very isolating. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why this show was started, is to to reach out to people who feel that way and tell them, mm -hmm. no, this is a pretty universal experience and that they're not yes. failures for no. hiccuping and mm -hmm. maybe stalling in a system that wasn't built for them. Mm -hmm. But just because it's not built for you doesn't mean that you shouldn't be there. Absolutely. I think that we take the identity of academic scholar so personally and so to heart that if we're in any way disengaged from it it feels like an identity loss oh yeah so absolutely like instances where you know people might get dismissed it's a it's a real like fundamental shock so also one of the things that will more than likely be your saving grace if you find yourself in a similar situation as me document, have those documents, have those emails, uh, and stay factual, remain factual. Um, have the receipts. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and I guess I take the stance too, to be completely honest and, and transparent of, yes, this was my failure. Yes. I felt like crap. I felt ousted. I felt attacked. And also, I mean, this was during the time where there was more protests going on and more civil unrest, uh, a lot of injustice happening, more so because we have cameras, we have social media to put these things on blast. And dealing with that, being a 
a black woman uh, here in the Midwest is challenging. And actually, in talking about that, I remembered another situation that happened to me. So in 2018, after a long day of work, I went out uh, to a bar with my coworker to have a drink after work. Him and I are sitting there. We're having a conversation, just minding our own business. And I, I heard this woman in like this deep voice, like not even deep voice. It was just more of like a sort of sound. Like there was so much anger and she was trying to like fight it back or something. But I kept hearing this woman talk and I could kind of tell, you know, every time she was talking my way, obviously her voice would be a little bit more pronounced. I really wasn't paying her any mind until she started to get a bit louder and again, ignored her, but really started to pay attention to her words when I heard her describe not only what I was wearing, not uh, my nails, the, like the fingernail polish that I had on, in addition to the purse that I had on the bar in front of me. It was a purple purse. What the fuck is she doing? Just providing like a narration of what she's seeing? I have no idea. It was kind of what I caught because when I caught purple purse, that's really when I started to listen in because I was like, whoa, whoa. Not, I'm the only one with a purple purse right now, right. you know? <laughs> and so I um, started to listen in, and she was just kind of like, oh, her with her purple purse. Oh, she thinks she's all that. Da, 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 da. And this woman, mind you, was a white woman. And so I started listening in, but I never engaged with her. And I heard her say things like, kill her, murder her. And she was sitting next to a guy, and I wasn't sure what their relationship was, but I would just hear him say things like, no, why would you do that? Why would you want to do that? She's cute as a button. She's this. She's that. Like, he was clearly kind of trying to defuse her. So long story short, the woman ends up eventually leaving the bar. The guy that I thought was with her wasn't with her. He had just met her that day and shared with me that she kept calling me the N-word under her breath, but loud enough so he could hear it, but not loud enough so I could hear it, um, and wanted to kill me, wanted to murder me. I had no idea who this woman was. I'd never met her in ever, ever. Turns out, after a bit of sleuthing, uh, we looked her up, we had her name, uh, and found her on social media, and she's a teacher here locally. She teaches at a predominantly black school. What? As a white woman. Mm-hmm. And when I came home, I cried. I cried so much. I was depressed, distraught uh, for weeks afterward, and... To me, it just reminded me that it doesn't matter my accomplishments, just the mere color of my skin, the fact that I'm different. That's what people judge you on. Again, I'd never met this woman, so I, I was so confused. And um, I, I communicated this with my committee, my first committee that was comprised of white women. Uh, it was just kind of like, we'll get over it. And I didn't realize the in, the impact it had on me. Uh, like it stayed with me for weeks. And so it was really hard to work and move forward on my proposal. I mean, the thing that is so insane is that 
this isn't even shocking. I mean, how many news stories come out that that teachers, coaches can hold these really insidious, racist and sexist notions Mm -hmm. and still teach the youth? And then you wonder how this society unfolds and it simultaneously becomes like disappointing, but also not shocking. That's the problem is that it's so commonplace now to just see people who are in higher ed, people who are supposedly educated, Mm -hmm. but really not when it comes to their own racism and prejudice. Exactly. And so when I looked up this teacher and found that she was working at a predominantly black high school here, I thought I could let this go. I could try and move on or I can try and do something. Because I, while I don't have any kids myself, I just thought, oh my God, these kids, she's probably helping to feed black kids into the school to prison pipeline. She has a position of power over these kids. And so I reported her. I even spoke to like an HR person with the school. I had, was thinking of going to news outlets and even to the school board. Like I, I had some plans I posted a video of me speaking my truth and sharing this experience, and I was in tears. I normally, I'm a very private person, but I thought, you know what? All these people who say they are my friends, who who love me, who support me, if they're my true friends, they're going to continue to love and support me. And for those who just see me as their black friend, I want them to know that, uh, or even those that say they don't see color, I want them to know that yeah, you know me and you know I'm a decent person. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to Sally on the fucking street. Like she sees me, she's going to judge me for my brown skin. Uh, and especially if I'm, have, heaven forbid, I have a, my hair up in a scarf or I'm wearing a dress that looks like it's African print. I clearly, you know, must not be from around here, which I was born and raised here, you know, in the Midwest. So anyway... So I posted the video and I was shocked by how many people were like, but did that really happen? Did that happen? Did someone actually call you the N-word? Did someone really threaten your life who did not know you? And I said, yes, yes, that happened. And, and if you must know, I also have a white male as a witness. What? You know? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're touching on such an important thing. Uh, it's it's a little complicated, but this idea of, well, the evidence speaks for itself now that we have recordings, mm-hmm. now that we have pictures, we have this very, like, you would be blind not to see it, Yes, which sparks a lot of protest, thank God. Mm-hmm. But this also feeds into something that also bothers me, which is... There's so many incidences of racism that now the internet is flooded with, like, broken black bodies. Yeah. And that's used as evidence, but at the same time, how traumatic is it that people's stories aren't being taken seriously? And, of course, I understand the idea of evidence Mm -hmm. being compelling, of course, but it's just one of those things where it's like, it, it's it's almost like people were like, well, I need proof. And now the proof is so overwhelming yeah. that it also comes to the point where it's like, well, how 
how are you tra- are you traumatizing a whole group of people in order to get white people to believe their struggles that they've been saying for decades? Right. As I reflected back on the story, people asked me, why didn't you have your phone on you? Well, I had my phone on me, but I was enjoying a, a great conversation with my coworker and decompressing. The hoops people will jump through to protect their own vision that they live in a just and fair society when that's so evidently not the case Mm -hmm. is mind-blowing oh my god why didn't you have your phone on you yeah what and oh okay let's ask what you were wearing at the time too and uh (laughs) yes so that was also a reason why my proposal was delayed uh in 2018 and why it took me a good year and a half uh, almost two years. I mean, with um, once I got my new committee, I was able to get my proposal done like that. But there was trauma along the way. And if there's anything I can do to support others, I'm happy to do it. When invited to participate on this lovely, amazing podcast. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yes. I didn't want to focus just on the negative. It's not easy. But I also wanted to highlight that through it all, you can persevere, you can move forward, you can make something of yourself. And if you have to use spite to do so, well, then there's no judgment (laughs) here. (laughs) Yes. And I also want to highlight that you can do all of those things, whether you pursue academia or not, you still have value. I know that a lot of people have their identity in academia. Mm -hmm. And if the coin flips to the other side, and you get dismissed, or you have to throw in the towel or do whatever mm-hmm. that doesn't diminish your worth in any capacity. At Absolutely. All. Absolutely. So again, I just want to thank you. Do you have any um, social media things that you want to promote or anything like that? Where can people find you? Yes. Uh, so really, I, I use Facebook uh, a lot. It's Keisha Monet Bradford, Keisha, K-E-S-H-I-A, Monet, M-O-N-A-I, and then Brad Ford. Uh, You can find me there. That's probably the best way to connect. I am on LinkedIn if anyone wants to connect that way. Uh, But really, truly, just know that you're not alone. Thank you so so much. And again, I think you're doing that just by speaking your truth and it's so helpful and I would have killed to have met you a year ago two Mm -hmm. years ago that would have been awesome Mm -hmm. but I get the lovely privilege of meeting you now so yes yes well thank you so much for having me thank you I really appreciate it